Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today in this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. People often ask me, how do you find your interview subjects? Well, I'm one of those people who pulls the thread, and I keep going with that thread to find out what's next. Well, some of you may remember that a number of weeks ago, I interviewed Trevor Loudon, who produced the film Enemies Within the Church, an expose of the infiltration of Marxist ideas into the pulpits of America. Well, after it was all done, I watched all the extended interviews, and I had this, okay, guys, what's next? So I looked for a what's next on their website. There really wasn't a what next title, but it did say four steps to save America. Now, of those four steps, number three was get equipped with a biblical worldview. And it linked to another site. Well, there's me pulling those threads again. And I came to something called an introduction to the worldview course. Well, my guests today are the Worldview Guys, Mark Noroth and James Gilbert, who put together this 13-part video series for individuals, families, and small groups. And not surprisingly, it's all about thinking biblically in every area of life. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Okay. So on your site... I try to do a little bit of like, who are these guys? And do I want to spend 13 segments of video with them, which I did. You bill yourselves as high mileage meets high tech. What exactly does that mean? (laughs) Well, high mileage. I'm high mileage. Uh, I've I've been in ministry for for, uh, 53 years and had the privilege to minister in, in about 60, 61 countries of just about lost count because the map keeps changing. And, uh, and Mark hasn't traveled as much, although we're breaking him in soon, but, but, uh, uh, Mark's definitely more high tech. He's, he's an entrepreneur. Do you have to explain that, Mark? Uh, yeah, I sometimes call myself an entrepreneur. Um, entrepreneur. So make sure you get that. Yes. 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 Nerd, nerd, uh, emphasis on that. So I, um, by day, I am uh, the chief technology officer of a of a travel technology company, and uh, that probably sounds completely boring. I don't think so. I think it's quite fascinating. And uh, <laughs> and then by night, I uh, I dabble in uh, biblical worldview and church history and all that jazz. So um, high mileage meets high tech. I think we also sometimes say that Jim or James has been everywhere, and I've read everything, and that's. That's pretty close to true. It's true. I I I do read, by the way. But it, <laughs> I'm glad to hear so, it. So, Fox uh, and socks, you know, all sorts of good titles, Jim. Great. I I read everything that's been printed since the printing press, and he reads everything that was written before the printing press, which is <laughs> a lot. Pretty much, you can identify us that way, right? <laughs> but how did you meet? In other words, okay, high tech and um, high mileage. You're not of the same generation. If people could see you, you'd see that uh, James is sporting um, the crown of older men, and uh, Mark hasn't quite gotten there yet. So let's see. How did we meet? I was invited to a conference 
in, I think it was 2014, something like that, um, by a mutual friend. Uh, our friend's name is Dan Smithwick. He's the creator of the Peers Test at Nehemiah Institute. And at that conference, um, I met Jim. And I guess the rest is history. Jim, you should tell your side of the story because it's much more interesting than mine. Well, Dan, Dan had told me, Dan had told me about, um, a young guy in California, uh, who, you know, 28 year old in California, who was a, a programmer, uh, whose obsession was not dabbling in the evening, but, but whose obsession was biblical worldview. And he had offered to move some of Dan's materials online. And of course, that eventually became worldview guys under us. He, he said, I, you need to meet this guy. So he invited both of us to this conference. And Mark was scheduled to speak part of the time. Of course, he got up and I have to say, Mark is his generation. When he speaks, his hands are moving like crazy and his voice will go higher and he'll look at the sky and look at the floor. But it gets really intense. And and what was coming out of his mouth after about five minutes had everybody's jaw on the floor. And I realized the only thing that we have in common is that my weight and I'm overweight is probably about his IQ and I got to get to know this guy. So, so we, we started to, to uh, correspond and talk on the phone and, and uh, occasionally get, be able to get together. And for some reason, we just understand each other really well. And we're kind of a yin and a yang uh, to one another. Um, I'm the smart aleck. He's polite, but I'm, we, we do, we do match. Uh, when we get together, it, it turned out to be a great combination, at least, I was happy with the results. So. Right. Well, I can tell you that in looking at the whole program, I immediately um, ordered it. And Mark and I have been in touch with each other. As Mark will tell you, I'm not averse to giving my opinion on things and, and whatever. But you both have been really gracious in as much as I believe this, not to use an evolutionary term, but what you've put together is a missing link. Because after people watch a film like Enemies Within the Church, they're mad. Well, that's great. But oftentimes, they're not mad in the correct way. You know, the, the, if you're going to diagnose a problem, if you're going to look for a remedy, you've got to diagnose the problem. And I think you'll agree with most people, the problem exists between their ears. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that, Andrea, actually, because when we made the worldview course, uh, Jim sat in my, in my kitchen and I said to, I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not mad about it. And, and can we put our worldview, can we distill it in a way that, well, with ukulele music? <laughs> and, and, and so what we tried to do was we tried to put together the Christian worldview in a way that was both, uh, th that was true, that we weren't losing anything, but at the same time, we weren't pushing everyone away. And, and I think there's, um, I, I, I like, I like to read uh, church history. I'm, 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 uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the early church. And there's this particular, sermon by by John Chrysostom that we actually end the worldview course with. 
And John Chrysostom, in this sermon, asks a question. He said, how did the church convince the world to think correctly, to think biblically? Because the world didn't at the time that he was a pastor in Constantinople in the 5th century. And he said, you know, did we do it through wars? Did we do it by winning debates? How how did this come about? And and the answer it, it's it's just very simply. In fact, here let me I I I pulled up a part of this. So let let me just read it to you quick. So um, all this was managed. Everything Jesus did, he managed without using weapons, without spending money, without moving armies, without causing wars. He managed it only setting out with 12 followers who were unimportant, simple, uneducated, poor, naked, and weaponless. But he did that. He caused the world, pagans, to think correctly simply by showing them a better way of life. And that's what we're trying to do in the Worldview course. Not beat you over the head, but just simply naturally say, hey, this is what the Bible says. This is what the church has taught for 2,000 years. How can we just go and live that every single day? Yeah, at the national level, but also just in our neighborhoods. Because that, uh, we can win all the culture wars, but are we actually winning souls in our neighborhoods? And we do that through our lives. Right. Yeah, the, our, our byline, Andrea, has become win the culture and you end the war. Um, I think that's a, a, a really big deal. And, and, and one thing Mark, Mark just said also, I think is, a, is another really big deal. You know, Israel's problem was that they kept looking for a king like all the other nations. And I think that, that Christians in America are, we're far better known, evangelicals in particular are far better known for what we're against than what we're for or who we're for. And I think we, we, um, we need to realize that, that, um, Change comes not from the top down, but from the bottom up. That's the way Jesus said his kingdom works, that that if you're the first, you have to become the last. If you're at the one in authority, you prove it by serving. And uh, I, I learned a long time ago through Dr. Gary North's writing, uh, who's you know he's a tiger in print and yet a, a very gentle person uh, when you meet him. And and I learned a long time ago that, that he talked about the fact that that we need to um, we need to win people. Uh, rather than fight wars. Now he would pick theological fights on purpose because he wanted to see if they could answer him. But, but overall, our approach to the world is, is, has been to serve better because responsibility flows to those who serve. We've perverted that now. We promise to serve in politics, but we promise to serve with other people's money. And we just turn out with theft by ballot box, just robbing people. Exactly. And there's too many people who think. Being outraged makes them qualified to teach or to prescribe remedies. And what I really like, first of all, your sessions are no more than 30 minutes each. And as I mentioned before, we started recording. I'm taking a group of people through it. And my intent had been, for time's sake, let's just go through two segments every time we meet and it becomes impossible to because you open up this really good can of worms <laughs> and now people have to start thinking about how they think and you're you're pretty good at getting under the skin 
and getting someone to say, well, wait, before you start trying to fix other people, maybe you should consider how you think, because that really is like our, well, you, I'm sure James, you're familiar with Dr. Rush Juni's writings. If you are familiar with Gary North, but Dr. Rush Juni always used to say that we are all nearsighted and farsighted both. And the only way to get through life is to put on the glasses of scripture so that you can see clearly. And I think too many people are walking around and they'd have no idea that that fuzzy image could actually get clear. I, I think you're perfectly right. Um, we wear other lenses these days. Um, and on the left, Christians are trying to master being woke and still being Christians. And on the right, it's, it's, uh, father, son, and man with orange hair. And, and there's no, there seems to be no middle. It's, it's all become binary. Um, and we think that middle means compromise, but it doesn't. It just means a third way that's better than either of the two that, that folks seem to, to embrace. You know, you can be legalistic on one side, you can be lawless on the other, but in the middle, there's lawful. And I think what, what Rush Dooney was saying, um, in putting on a biblical lens, is taking God's law and and not not applying it rigidly and yet not abandoning it, but taking it and writing it on your, letting letting it be written on your heart, so that in life, in real life, on a daily basis, you can bring up what you need to at the time you need it. Right. And that's that's a biblical lens to me. So you mentioned that you met at a conference by Dan that was posted, or at least he showed up, Dan Smithwick. And he's known in the Nehemiah Institute and for the peers testing. So the peers testing, P-E-E-R-S, is, I wouldn't say the most important part of your message, but it's a springboard. So, Mark, why the peers test? And maybe before that, what is the peers test? I, when I first met, met Dan, I was just so interested in this guy because for as long as I've been alive – he has been assessing Christian worldview, particularly um, among high school students. And I was a high school student when I first met Dan, and, and, and we, I learned about this test he has called PEERS. Now, PEERS is an acronym. It stands for Politics, Economics, Education, Religion, and Social, issue, uh, social Issues, Society. And... Literally, for as long as I've been alive, since 1988, he has uh, been giving or he's distributed this test to all sorts of students around the country and has this trend chart that's one of the most terrifying things that you've ever seen. Uh, we've printed it. Uh, we've reprinted it in the book, at least uh, the numbers through 2015. And it shows over the course of the last 30 years the, a change in how we as young people, as Americans, view the world. It measures our worldview. And um, the, the Pierce test, uh, based on it, it's a it's a series of 70 kind of Likert scale questions. So do you, do you agree with this strongly? Do you disagree with this strongly? And uh, – asks questions in these four categories, uh, five categories, politics, economics, education, religion, and social issues. And then it puts you at the end, based on your score, in one of four worldviews. It says, you know, you're, you're really thinking biblically. You, you have a strong biblical theist worldview. 
all the way to you don't think anything like the Bible at all. And, and what we've seen over the course of the last 30 years is a marked departure from biblical thinking at any type of, at any type of school. Uh, so Dan often does these, uh, the Pierce test in, you know, Christian schools, public schools, uh, private schools of any type, home schools. And the results across the board are society as a whole is thinking less and less biblically. Now, that's pretty axiomatic. Like, you can look at our society now and compare it to 30 years ago, and you say, yeah, I know that. So what we did is we built the worldview course around the most missed questions on the peers test. And we said, how, how can we not prepare people to take a test, but prepare people to really think biblically. What are the areas, the weakest areas in our worldview right now? Because we all have a worldview. The question is just, what is our worldview? In fact, Jim, that's how we open the worldview course. We talk about a deep philosophical question about fish. <laughs> <laughs> Does a fish know it's wet? I borrowed that, uh, and I told him so. I borrowed that from a guy named Gary DeMar, um, whose name you probably know. Yes, and I've interviewed him, and he's well known to my audience. So, all right. So, so, so Gary asked that question, which I think is a brilliant question. Um, in a live, we were on a, on a, the same day as a, at a conference years ago, and I thought it was a brilliant question because fish, if they had the, the capacity to know or not know, fish don't know they're wet because the environment they're in is the only one they've ever known. And they don't have anything to compare it with. Now you take them out of water and very quickly their worldview changes <laughs> because this, they'll suffocate quickly. So um, it was a great way to start the question of, of what is a worldview. And the fact is most people just grow rather haphazardly into their worldview. They inherit without thinking about it. That's the thing. A worldview is formed without thinking about it. So it's assumptions. It's, it's a set of presuppositions. So they inherit it from their parents first or their lack of parenting first and then and then from relatives from from friends from peer groups from school teachers um and and from kids at the mall uh and and as a result you have this hodgepodge and unfortunately even even amongst christians uh, amongst dedicated church-going christians uh who think they have a christian worldview in fact most of the time score pretty low um, except in the R category, the religion category, they score a middling in that category. But the other, the other four categories, uh, they, they score really, really low, pretty much identical with non-church goers. We contrast, uh, a biblical worldview. We could say atheistic, but these days it's more accurate to say socialist, not because that's the buzzword of the day. In fact, it wasn't the buzzword of the day, even when, when it was set up. But socialism, as as I was going to say, as we know it, most people don't even understand who who say they're for socialism don't understand it. But it's the most explicitly anti-biblical worldview that exists in the world right now. So does a fish know he, let's say, or she, because there are she fishes, do they know that they're wet? It's almost like asking the question, do people know what they don't know? How do you really know what you don't know unless there's a standard to go to? 
So when people hear in your experience, before we'll get into the, the nuts and bolts here, if you were to ask the average person, do you have a biblical worldview? You know, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they would say, go to the statement of faith on our church website. I believe this, 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 and this. What are they missing? What, what do they think they think? And what do they actually respond to? In other words, what's the main, gla- what are the glasses they're putting on that they're not even aware of it? Well, I, I, I'll, I, I think, Mark, we ought to go to you first. <laughs> Statements of faith are one of my favorite things, Andrea. So um, after the Worldview course, I put together a book on, uh, on the Nicene Creed. And one of the reasons why is um, because of an assumption that we made in the Worldview course. We said, you know, everyone who's going to take this course, they're fairly strong in that R category in religion. Uh, we're, we're um, you know, we have our doctrinal differences, our denominational differences, but by and large, we all agree the same things about the gospel. We found that isn't true. <laughs> um, uh, it, it isn't true in a, in a major, major way. And I think what I'm seeing and, and what I hear from the people who take the worldview course or who read Power of the Creed, they tell me that it helps them look at themselves. It's one thing to believe in the Incarnation. It's one thing to believe in the resurrection or the crucifixion or the ascension or any of these things. It's another to say, what does that mean to me on the freeway? What does that mean to me at work, at school? And what we've tried to do is not give you high theological, highly intricate, detailed exegesis. We've just said, how can you apply this in everyday life? And often what I hear from Christians today is anything that's wrong, anything that's wrong with the church, anything that's wrong with the country, anything that's wrong is someone else's fault. I wrote an article several years ago called I'm What's Wrong with America (laughs) and So Are You. And it kind of took off a little bit, to be honest. And that concept of, wait a second, yeah, the economics in our country is messed up, but honestly, economics is more about my house than the White House. These type of concepts that, wait a second, maybe the issues I'm seeing in the world around me, maybe they're not someone else's fault. Maybe it's we're getting what we deserve. Maybe we need to start thinking differently. If we could change our thinking, we might change our world. And and I think really, truly, that is the missing piece. The oh me, applying it to ourselves. And that's what the Worldview Course tries to do. So let me interject here. I love the fact that somebody who um, is the younger generation. I don't know what group you fall into. I never kind of get into those groupings. But the fact is, you see the bankruptcy of pointing the finger. Now, a lot of people in my generation, Mark, think it's virtuous to point the finger. As a matter of fact, some of them think that the worse things get, 
the bus arrives sooner and we get to leave. But people your age and younger are like, wait a minute, we're here. I'd like to see grandchildren someday, or I'd like to be married someday. So saying that the only solution is that we abandon ship or we're getting the call to abandon ship leaves it in the realm of, we just have to hope this happens sooner than the bad guys keep amassing. Right. You know, and- Andrea, I'm one of those millennial snowflakes, just, just so <laughs> you know. And, um, I actually said to a, uh, I spoke at a conference once and it was, you know, a bunch of boomers. And I said to them, you know, you guys are so lucky. You can just die. But I can't. I have to live with this. And so, and and my children do too. And so when I look at, uh, you know, I earlier I talked kind of what I do by day versus what I do by night. I, I do what I do uh, to entirely kind of self-fund these these other projects. We did not get in this mess overnight. And we are not going to get out of it overnight. This is a generational commitment. And so that means it begins first and foremost, not with an election, not with a revival, but with changing how our children think, raising them in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they do not depart from it. You know, I grew up in the middle of the country. I grew up in the Midwest. And one thing that I learned there very simply was that the world is black and white. And I got a foundation in the scriptures. Now, then my work took me to Los Angeles and to New York. And those places are very different than the small town where I grew up in the middle of the country. But I found the truths that I learned there, just basic, simple things, held me wherever I needed to go. And that's one of my favorite definitions of education. I think Oswald Chambers said an educated person is someone who knows what to do, whatever situation they are put in. And so our focus, my focus, I'm in this for the long haul, Uh, for my children, for my children's children. What can we do to say, look, Sometimes you can have people right now say that you're, as a Christian, you're on the wrong side of history. As a Christian, you're bigoted. As a Christian, you don't care about other people. Like that is the greatest historical lie that I've ever heard. I, if you were to look at my desk, Andrea, I have a very odd combination of things on it. I have a, a lamp here from 500 BC. I have uh, some coins from ancient Byzantium. If you know anything about history at all, you know that one of the greatest forces for cultural good ever, despite all our faults, is the church. And if the church was that once, the church can be that again. What's happened is we're, it's almost like we're on the road to Emmaus. We've forgotten. We're like the disciples. It's resurrection morning, but we're going down sad and distraught because we lost an election. <laughs> because we didn't get, because, 
because of whatever the current culture war is, because because the CEO of Coca-Cola said something like, dear Lord, it's resurrection morning. (laughs) And do we believe that God can make dead things live again? Like, do we believe that or not? And if if our country is dead, which it's not, but if it is, do we believe that God can make dead things live again? And I keep these little anecdotes on my desk for that particular reason. They're, they're little historical mementos that remind me of this. In fact, let me just... Let me just give you a little object lesson here. This is how we end the worldview course. So I have in my hand here, I wish you guys could see it, but I'll kind of describe it. I have in my hand a denarius. This was minted in 71 AD. And on the front is Vespasian, the emperor. And on the back is Mars, the god of war. Now this was minted, like I said, in 71 AD. What happened a year before this coin was minted? The temple in Jerusalem fell. And Josephus, the historian, tells us that after, it, after the temple fell, Vespasian's son Titus took the Bible, literally the scroll of the law that was in the temple, and he marched it through the streets of Rome as a spoil of war. The Bible... Christianity was literally a spoil of war. Like, that is not a Christian society. That's, the, that's my first coin. Here's my second coin. It's a thousand years later, but it's still a Roman coin. It's from the Eastern Roman Emperor, uh, Empire. We call it Byzantium, but the, they didn't call themselves that. They called themselves Romans. On the front of this coin, instead of the emperor, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. And on the back, instead of the god Mars, it says, Jesus Christos Nika, Jesus Christ, Victor. (laughs) Now, what happened? The Bible went from a spoil of war to a society where Jesus was everywhere. God was everything. What happened? The church is what happened same empire, the culture entirely changed, not by fighting culture wars, but by the caliber of the character of Christians. And at the end of the day, that's what the worldview course, that's what Christianity is about. It's about being like Christ, Christian character. And yes, you need to think correctly politically and economically and about education and about all these different social issues. But if we get our character right, the world changed. It did once, and it'll do it again. By now, you can tell that Mark and I both subscribe to a very scandalous doctrine uh, that the gospel was designed to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, unfortunately, is scandalous. Uh, especially amongst evangelicals these days. But I think across the church world in general, we've gotten used to being uh, put off in our corner and not being relevant. You know, it used to be that if a tragedy happened, pastors were called in. Now it's grief counselors and psychologists. Um, we don't explain evil in terms of, of um, sin. We explain it in terms of mental health. 
because it lets us off. Now, that's not to denigrate the seriousness of, of well, of, of good sound mind. But at the same time, that, that can easily become uh, a way of avoiding the fact that evil is not some externally, uh, this, this, this combination of external forces that causes us to do bad things, but it's internal. And we, we want to address that, but at the same time, we wanted to address it in a newer and, and fresher way, um, rather than, uh, so, so often as presented as biblical worldview, it is, but at the same time, it's presented with, with organ music or, or majestic trumpet sounds, uh, not ukuleles. Um, <laughs> and, and, but uh, even beyond and in, those surface things, it's also, an intent is the intent behind this to just know what the correct position is. Yeah. Is the, the intent to be mad for people who don't hold that position or is the point like we should define grace. We should define love. We should define all these things so we can be them. Yeah. So we can <laughs> we show can them. Live yeah. them and show them to people. And, and that's the whole point. It's not to hold right economic policy. It's to be faithful stewards. And I think the other aspect of this, which I do believe comes through, is that if I looked at a person and said, you don't have a biblical worldview, it's not the same as saying you're ugly. It's not the same as saying you smell. It's not this, it's not even accurate to say, you're not going to heaven because last I checked, election doesn't have to do with getting all 70 questions correct. When you talk about worldview, you're just basically saying, this is what the Bible says. Now, once I communicate to you what the Bible says, and I show you that the Bible says this, and you disagree, that's certainly within your purview. You know, I can't get in your head and force you to agree but then don't say you have a biblical worldview, right? Like I used to tell my children, I could tell everybody I was an acclaimed opera singer, but they would sit next to me in church and they would know that's not true because when I sang, you know, I'd get the, okay, slow it down, mom, make it a little bit lower, but I don't need to hear this. And I'm like, you know what? God hears it and I'm fine with it. But just by saying I'm an opera singer didn't make me an opera singer, Right. Just by saying, oh, yeah, I have a biblical worldview because I'm a Christian doesn't mean you have a biblical worldview, does it, James? No, not at all. I, I think the, the word Christian, the definition of the word Christian has been muddied by, by, lang by language deconstructionists. Uh, you know, everybody, every, every word that had any absolute to it has been redefined. We don't we, we can't say gender anymore with any definite definition. Um, there's so many words that we can't say with definition. And unfortunately, the word Christian has become muddied. Um, and perhaps one big reason for that is that we haven't reinforced uh, what the word Christian means. When you, when, when you mentioned statements of faith and, and, and Mark went into that in some more depth, I, my first thought is, why isn't the Nicene Creed? Or the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed is the one that, that we've preferred because of being able to trace its authorship. Why isn't that sufficient for a statement of faith? Why do we have to tack on these these things we have in a statement of faith that really are there's kind of like a voice lesson from Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis Presley 
Elvis Presley broke, you know, I, I took voice lessons. I, I'm, I don't have it anymore, but I had a pretty big voice and a skinny body. And, and I was urged to go into opera. I'm so glad I didn't because it's a dirtier world than rock and roll. But there, there, there's, there's simplicity and correct singing. Elvis broke every rule in the world with regard to singing. Now, okay, he was popular, undoubtedly, he's hugely popular. But at the same time, he broke all the rules. That's not the person you want to take the voice lesson from. So I don't understand why we have to add these what we believe pages to our websites when we have what we believe in the form of the creed. And it's frankly a lot, a lot more basic and yet a lot more complete um, than than what we've been told. So, yeah, I think there's also a confusion between faith and culture. You know, people think they're choosing faith when what they're actually choosing is the latest culture war. That's a great point. And and there's a huge distinction there. And sometimes when you're just presented with what the faith is, whether it's in the creed or the peers test or whatever, you realize, oh, I was choosing something else. I was basing my identity based on the group I belong to or the church I belong to instead of what I actually, truly, really believe. Dr. S. Juni in his book, The Foundations of Social Order, goes through the creeds and councils of the early church and points out that the Nicene Creed, let's take that because it's a more full, it's a fuller statement than the Apostles' Creed, sets a boundary, right? And the boundary says, if you believe this and subscribe to this, then you are in Christ and you are a Christian. But nowadays, it's fashionable to say, I have no creed but Jesus, right? And so Jesus is a no boundaries kind of idea. So you could believe in abortion and still be a Christian. You could believe that there are many roads to salvation and still be a Christian. So what we've lost, and I think you can speak to this, Mark, in terms of why history, specifically church history is important, is that if you don't know how you got where you got today, and you think that everybody back in the third century thought like people do in 2022, you're grossly mistaken quite apart from the fact that they didn't have smartphones. Let me tell you about how I got interested in church history, Andrea, because I wasn't. Um, For the longest time, it did not interest me at all. Uh, Again, these people did not have smartphones. They had funny names and halos. And I really (laughs) thought there was no application to my life and to my faith. We had no shared experience. But I, um, I heard the very beginning of a sermon. And it was truly uh, the sermon that changed my life. The pastor stood up, he went to the pulpit, he, uh, you know, set down his Bible, adjusted his notes, and he looked out at the audience and he said, I don't want to speak anything from this pulpit that hasn't been said before. And I just froze because I thought, I've, I don't know what's been said before. I have no idea. You could say that that pastor could have said whatever he wanted. And I would have known if it was biblical, but I wouldn't know if it had been said before. 
I had no idea, none whatsoever, about the Christian past. And I, but I wanted to. (laughs) And so I started reading, really originally just for information. And I started, I started reading the church fathers from the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth centuries. And I read them every day along with the scriptures. And what started out as a quest for information changed pretty quickly because I saw not just the depth of, of early Christian ideas, or, or maybe I could say the, the breadth of early Christian ideas, but also the depth of their character. There, there's something, when, when the creed was our focus, when we said it every Sunday in church, when we remind ourselves of the things we believe in, not just the things we're against, the church impacted culture in a very different way. And I saw people in all of these, uh, all those centuries that I listed before, individuals, men, women, even children, who changed their culture, who changed their world simply through the depth of their character. And, and it totally changed my view of my life and my faith. I went from, I want to know who you guys are, you know, just just uh, as as to fill in my my blank between the book of Acts and my life here in the 21st century, to saying, what have we lost? Why do we have? It's it's almost like we are afraid of our culture, whereas they utterly transformed it, and that connection to history. It does a lot of things for me personally. One of the things is it calms me down mm-hmm. because I know that problems like this, they have generational solutions. If you look at the Christological heresies in the third and fourth and fifth centuries, they weren't solved by one expose film, by, by, by one election. In fact, those things had nothing to do with it. It was a very slow, progressive process through just the worship and life of the church. I've also noticed that those creeds earlier, Andrea, you said they set boundaries. They do, but they also expand our vision. It's so easy for us as, as, as 21st century Christians to focus on our particular scriptures or, or the things that we think are important. What are the issues of our day? But I went through and I counted in the Nicene Creed alone, there's 761 scriptures from the law, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, scriptures that I honestly didn't even remember before I encountered them in the creed. And instead of allowing me to have this myopic 21st century construct of what Christianity is in light of American, American culture, it pushed that vision out and back and up and down so that I have to, so that I have to reconcile what I believe with what those who went before me believe. 
So James, let me ask you this. I don't know who wrote a book, but I, it might have been Gary DeMar, When Worldviews Collide, right? I forget who wrote that, but what happens to a person after taking this peers test, for example, and they discover how schizophrenic they are, how they actually have warring worldviews within their head? Well, first we have to to really look at, at to whom the is aimed. A lot of people think it's it's you know for for the kids, and we did design it for ages fourteen and up. But we designed it more for parents and pastors and teachers because they're the ones from whom the kids get their worldviews in the most concrete ways. Uh, and, and so we designed it for them. And hopefully to provoke them to go further. Now, in in our leader guide, in our in our our uh, our leader guide, we have, we have a, a beautiful study guide, 145 pages with broad margins for for note keeping. Uh, but we also have recommended books uh, and and recommended resources. Uh, and of course, there's the Pierce test itself, although that's more of an option these days than than a requirement. That's as far as we could go. Uh, so far, that's as far as we could go uh, with with the course. Now, since it was the first thing that we that we uh, had had put together as the guys, uh, Mark hadn't written Power of the Creed yet, hadn't read He Became What We Are yet. Um, we've got more more books in the hopper, but we hadn't had those those resources available. Um, but that's primarily what we've recommended, and hopefully, if you get a pastor provoked. In a positive way. I mean, frankly, I just, if I, if I'd rather be provoked, I'd rather we provoke them negatively than to be ignored. But if we can provoke them positively to go ahead and study more, um, and, and read up more. I mean, if you look at Mark's, uh, awakening spiritually, he's talked primarily about reading, um, reading and prayer together. And if, and in, in my case, uh, the same, although I didn't go into early church history nearly as, as early as I should have. But I, I started exposing myself to, to good authors with, with good content and especially to a wider audience than I'd grown up with. I grew up with essentially a paperback reading library and I started to discover authors that would provoke my thinking. Um, and, and some of them, even when I disagreed, I still benefited from. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's one way that we can really benefit. Uh, Mark may be able to, to speak further to that, but I think I'm just kind of thinking of session 12, Jim. We we ha- we dedicate an entire session to understanding your peers' results because if if you if you get this, you know, you've been going to church your entire life, um, and and you get your results back, and it says you are a socialist. Now, <laughs> it. Um, you're like, this test is bunk. What, what is going on here? And it's not saying you're a socialist. It's saying your thinking has been influenced by non-biblical ideas. And there are two basic reactions to that. There are the people who say, no way, uh, th- that can't be right. And there are those people whose hearts are pricked and say, maybe I need to look deeper into what I believe. And that's really, you know, for someone who loves technology, the worldview course is very old school. 
Um, we, we ship it in a phys- it's a physical box with a physical book and uh, this thing called DVDs. Have you heard of those before? I, I, I don't know. And the whole point though is that really the magic of the worldview course happens when people do it as a group, when people do it together and they start to discuss, you know, I've never thought of this before. I, I, I never realized that economics, uh, again, I, um, if you t- if we look at the etymology of that word, it's economia, ecos, house, nomos, law. It's the law of my house more than it's President Biden's fault. That concept, little things like that are huge paradigm shifts for people. In fact, Jim, what do we call them? We call them pigs in the road and 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 we put these pigs throughout the book and we really we want people to discuss those things together and together kind of come to these conclusions can you explain what a pig in the road is yeah you know if you look in the in the study the study guide you probably andrea probably noticed this there are little little graphics little photos of pigs in the margins every once in a while beside a particular paragraph did you you saw them right yes i did okay so so those came from a story that I, I actually read in a marketing book one time, and I now do my version of the story because I embellished it enough. That's what I get for being part of uh, an, an evangelistic uh, outreach in my early life. Uh, I know how to exaggerate. Not, this wasn't exaggerated. It's just unfolded better. Um, but there's a story of a guy who's got his in England who's got his favorite little British sports car. It's an old MG and he's so happy with it. Old TD model. He's so happy and he babies the thing and every Saturday he takes it out for a, for a drive and he has his favorite circuit, one of those little lane, one of those little lanes you drive with all its curves and, uh, and hedgerows that are trimmed. It's beautiful. It's beautiful British countryside, which is almost redundant. Everything's beautiful there in the country, but he's driving along every, every Saturday and he's got this thing out. And he, he gets to where he knows that road so well that he can take it through all its gears and he can make that thing move like a Tesla. It's just so, so perfect. And one Saturday he's out there and he takes a particular curve and all of a sudden a car full of screaming teenage girls runs him off the road. And as they pass him, they yell, Pick! and he's outraged. He's absolutely, totally outraged. And he yells back, cow, and he's so infuriated that they would call him a pig. And then he gets himself together and gets back on the road and he starts driving and he goes around the next curve and he hits a pig. (laughs) What he had heard as an accusation was meant as a warning. So we, we explained early in the course that you should not take what you hear in this course as an accusation. You should not take your peers score as an accusation You should take it as a warning. And in fact, the way we designed the course originally was that people would take that test twice, that they would take it at the beginning of the of the course and not see their scores, because if you see your score at the beginning, it just you're ready to quit life. So they don't get to see their scores at the beginning. Then at the end of the course, after you've taken it, you get to take it again to see how much that course has influenced your thinking. And usually the scores are dramatically higher after you've taken the course than they were to begin with. So you get to see your progress. Then people are really encouraged to pursue further study 
um, to pursue. And as Mark said, as a group, um, I, I think in particular, what, what you mentioned, you used the word boundaries a while ago, Andrea. Yeah, the law was given to us as boundaries, but not like just dead rules. Because we have, and Mark, thank you for saying they've expanded, the, the boundaries are not narrow, but boundaries tends to sound negative to people when in fact they're there to set us free. You know, a train is not, is not free when you take it off its rails. It has to have the rails. That's what it was made for. A bicycle has to have its chains. That's how it runs properly. That's how it runs, period. So we wanted to supply the rails, the chains. We wanted to supply the boundaries. Um, but at the same time, for every negative, there's a positive. In fact, we took the Ten Commandments and we flipped the last five. You can do it with all five, but we flipped the last five into positives. God doesn't dictate the positives to us very, very often. There, there are three commandments out of the Ten Commandments that are positives. So those are commandments what we're to do. But with regard to what we don't do, rather than legislate what we don't do, he's given us his Holy Spirit to open up the do's. So the commandment that says you shall not commit murder, if you flip it into a positive, you shall be a life giver. Well, how should you be a life giver? Does everybody need to be a heart surgeon? Does everybody need to have 12 kids? Well, it depends on the grace that God has called you to in your life. And the spirit of God directs different people into different callings. So we, we, we try to emphasize that at the end of the course in that 12th video, whether people have taken the, have taken the Pierce test or not, they'll benefit from that 12th video. Because we try to show them that the positives are far more more important, and you cannot legislate the positives than the negatives are. If you legislate the positives, then people perform to to a minimum. It's called positive jurisprudence in legal terms, and it's a horrible thing. Telling people what they have to do, they're going to do the minimum required. Right. So I'm going to make a personal confession here. I've heard about, I mean, I've known about the Pierce test for a long time. I, unlike you, Mark, I was born already when the Pierce test came out, right? And I, I thought, oh, that'll be helpful to people. But since I was going to be leading the course and doing it, I decided to take the test. And so I took it knowing that I was going to do a great job because after all, I've taught biblical law for 20 years. I understand that our, you know, the Bible is systematic and, and stuff like that. So since I fast forwarded through the course so that we could have a knowledgeable interaction today, I'm, I think we're only on number six with one group or seven, but I had to get all the way through the end. And so I took it again. My score went from 84. I was like, 84? Hey, I know my stuff. I was still a biblical theist, but the second time it was a 97. So what did I learn about myself? Well, you could say, okay, you learned how to take the test. And there is an element of the fact that once you understand how a test is arranged, you know how to, you know, maneuver it. But I realized that what was made in 84, and, and there was only one question that I knew probably dinged my score down. My thinking was, yeah, but then there's the situation that, and you might have to say yes, and, you know, it's just not that cut and dry. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I have allowed, I mean, I'm a person who lives in 2022. 
I have allowed the, well, sometimes you have to know the context. Sometimes you have to know, you know, and I realized that there is relativistic thinking in my thinking right now. I didn't go out and tear up the books and say, I'm not going to talk to these guys because they gave me an 84 at the beginning, but it's just, just what you said. It makes you think and say, okay, so you may not even agree. So you might come away and say, they're wrong. I think I'm right and they're wrong. And I think I'm just doing a great job of following the Bible. But you have to encounter this idea that somebody's evaluation said there are areas where you're not thinking 100% biblically. You're right. And, and, and if you do come away disagreeing on, on a particular point, saying, no, the guys are wrong and I'm right, at least you know why you disagree far better than you did before, because before, more than likely, it was an intuitive thing with you or, or a, a, an opinion that you formed over time in a different way than, than say, Mark and I agreed. Um, so it, it's okay to come away disagreeing. The important thing is, is to know why you disagree. You know, there, there's, uh, was it North taught me a phrase years ago, epistemological self-consciousness, right? which is just simply knowing, not just knowing what we know, but knowing why we know what we know. That's the, the, the epistemology is, is knowledge about knowledge. It's the theory of knowledge itself. So it's important to know why. It's important to be able to explain why you believe what you believe. And in taking that test and taking the course, what we hope is that people are going to know what, not just what they believe, but why and where they need to make course corrections in their lives. Because I don't think the two of us could be that wrong to where we'd say, we'd say now that the test is 80 is, is, is 16% is uh, 84% off. Well, it's not even our test, Right. You know, no, like it's it, not. Uh, and, and Dan but the course is our course, put it so. through a pretty rigorous theological test that he, he sent it off to, to, to a group of very diverse theologians in the, in the late eighties, early nineties and, and kind of said, you know, do we agree on all of these points? Like, is, is this even a valid assessment? And, and he came back with yes. And so, um, yeah, I, I what I think is so interesting is, uh, very often it's the one thing that changes your life for me it was it was the, the one sentence the pastor said at the pulpit that i realized oh i'm i'm thinking in a in completely the wrong way that's what that's what the peers test is designed to do as well it's it's not like if you ace this test you you can you you are guaranteed to go to heaven and you are the best thing since jesus like that is that is not that is not the point the point is to think critically about what you believe yes and uh first of all one of the things that we this side of heaven we we know we haven't gotten it all right because at the point at which we're suited for heaven is when God removes us. So there's always more to learn. And that's what I think makes Bible study so exciting. Um, I've often told people, I go back to the first Bible I ever had as a serious student, and I look at these underlines and these exclamation points. And for the life of me, I'm like, what was so important about that? You know, <laughs> but at the time, you know, so we are changed. And so the continuing study, I have to say that I think the greatest um, sections of the uh, the worldview course, it's not so much that politics 
isn't important and social things, but people have heard a lot of that. When you go into the economics and when you go into education, um, although that may sound like I already know about education, but Mark, I particularly like what you had to say about religion because you brought up that bugaboo phrase that oh. my, I, I, I'm not in a religion. I'm in a relationship. relationship. Oh, yes. <laughs> so please share that because um, I was like, oh, that is so well said. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if I can remember it. Um, so uh, I'll refresh your memory. You pointed <laughs> out because of your generation, something called Facebook, which, oh, you know, 50 God. years ago, nobody with Facebook. What are we talking about? But in Facebook, you get to identify yourself. Yes. And you so do. you use that as a springboard. And and I had this friend at the time who had said, you know, they were in a relationship with so and so. And but that relationship was just the beginning. You know, then your status changes to engaged with so and so or married with so and so or married with so many kids with so and so. The relationship is intended to just be the beginning. And so often we get this idea that religion is a bunch of rules or whatever. And I think I give an example of all of the, like the legal benefits of marriage. There's like 1400 some like, like benefits legally of being married, but that's not the point of being married. The point isn't being able to file a joint tax return. <laughs> the point is doing life together. It's sharing in life. And the etymology of the word religion is, is a little, we're not quite sure about it, but, but one of the possible etymologies that's given is it's from the Latin religare, which literally means to bind yourself to someone, to bind, not in terms of bondage to legalism, but to bind yourself to God, to share in his life. And, and that word religion, it's not a dirty word. It's not a bad thing. What it's doing is, is it's making public this private relationship. So you have this relationship with Jesus, with the Holy Trinity, but now what you're doing is you're joining with everyone else. Everyone else in all times and all places who have said the same things. And you're saying, I'm part of this body. I'm part of this thing called the body of Christ. And that tweak, I think it's so funny when I hear people getting upset about institutions. Like no one has faith in institutions anymore. Well, of course they don't. Because... For years, we've said, you don't need the greatest institution of them all. You don't need the church. We've said it can just be you and Jesus. And so what we've done, every issue in American society right now, it, it's a theological problem. It all goes back to us. If, we, if, if, if people aren't respecting the law, well, it's because we downplay the law in our pulpits and we make law and grace antithes antithetical to each other. 
If, if we say it's just you and Jesus, it's a, it's a relationship, not a religion, then of course every other institution is going to start to crumble. The, 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 the family, the state, all of these things. And so it's really that our category, even though it's in the middle of peers, that our category is where it all rises and falls. If we don't understand that a worldview, a biblical worldview, is not just seeing the world as the Bible describes it, it's seeing the world as God does, that God, what we are trying to do is we are trying to get God's view of the world that he created. If you don't have that concept, then all you're doing is subscribing to, you know, to a different set of beliefs. And, and, and that changes and morphs and gets messy and sticky and all, and you get all these asterisks and, and all this stuff. But if you say, ah, there's one God and he does not change, how can I think like him? That's what had, a worldview is. If, if we had been able to put the course, to, to choose an acronym, to put the course in a, a more proper and more ideal order, it might have been R-E-E-S, and there wouldn't even been the P for politics. The reason that it's in the order that it's in is because politics has intruded so much into our lives and has become the definer of so much of American Christianity that it's made itself first. So we had to, we had to start, uh, to use, oh, to use an old phrase, we had to nip it in the bud. We, we needed to deal with that first because People think through more of a political grid. David French said it well in a recent column of his that politics is is defining our Christianity more than our Christianity is defining our politics. And we think it's the other way around, but it's not. All we're doing is is just doing the other extreme from the guys we don't like. And we can't let it be that way. If we could, it'd be great to start with the religion category, clean that up. And then go into economics and education and social issues. And politics might be a, 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 one of those asterisks in the, in the societal uh, department more than, it, than, than the big pig in the road um, that it is. So let me just make a comment about your pig in the road. Because it's, it, at first when I saw that, I was like, what is this? And then, of course, as I went through the workbook and I saw the lecture, there are a lot of people who once they have or adopted an increasingly faithful biblical worldview because it can always be improved and we can always be sanctified more and understand it, have this desire to share with other people. And the lesson for me, pig in the road, is that car with teenagers or what in the video, you don't say teenagers, you say a young lady or whatever. So I understand how you morph this story depending on how you like it, but the principle remains the same. Wouldn't it be better to say there is a pig in the road as opposed to going pig, right? Because one of the people who had listened to it told me, yeah, I was hoping the rest of the story was he's going to take a shotgun and blow out her tire. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. You sort of missed the point here. It was a warning. However ineffective it was in communicating it, if somebody said there is a pig in the road, then maybe he would have stopped and not been so angry. But you have to slow down long enough to get the whole sentence out. Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems that we have in our society 
is is that we do need to slow down. Mark, you said a phrase the other day about slowing down, a, a Greek saying that you said you love, and I, it, it was wonderful. Yes. Um, I'm slowing down because I'm in a hurry. It's just one of my favorite phrases from an old Greek friend. And and I think that if 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 the girls in the car, the young woman in the car, had time to say there's a pig in the road, um, it would have helped. She didn't. She responded, you know, just trying to save someone's life, tried to help someone. And often we do the same thing. We have the best of intentions, but we don't really sit and think, wait, how can I present this in a way that's not just going to, like, yes, we know that we will offend people. The gospel has a level of offense in it, the offense of the cross. But I think sometimes we judge our effectiveness by how many people we offend. (laughs) And that's really not the point. The great thing is, that if you have this view of history that the gospel works, that we don't have to feel like we have to respond instantaneously with the, just shout that one word pig. We have the time to get the other words out and to articulate what we believe. Like when I was a kid, I I mean, I'm a total nerd, but that's one of the things I would do. I would just ask myself questions that I didn't know the answer to. And I would sit on them for days or weeks or months until I had not just an answer that satisfied me, but that I thought would satisfy someone else. And I think that's really the question. Like when we talk with someone else, when we share our faith, when, when, when we have that run in with our neighbor, is our goal to be right? Or is our goal to help that other person? Because if you look at how we approach economics in the worldview course, we say that, you know, capitalism, it's not based on greed. It's based on giving. Well, I mean, everyone can agree on giving, right? Like uh, when you wake up in the morning, I'm going to give you a little historical anecdote here. Uh, And forgive me if it's a little obtuse. But one of the things I love is the Christological heresies that the creeds kind of came out of. So, so uh, we have Arius and Nestorius and, and all of these other people who, if you, if you have one view of history, you can look at them and say, you know, Arius didn't even believe he was God. How could he possibly be a Christian? But that guy woke up every morning not thinking he was taking the Bible out of context. He had his scriptures too. He thought that Jesus wasn't God and had scriptures to back him up. Now, he didn't have all the scriptures. He wasn't right. But when you start to realize that we're all human beings, we're all made in the image of God, and by and large, there are some people, there are the Hitlers of the world, but by and large, people care about the same things. They care about each other. They want to see our country prosper and succeed, but we have radically different understandings of how to get there. And when you can get to that base level and say, no, this is about giving, 
This is about helping other people. This is about promoting life, not about taking away freedom. When you can speak to people at that most basic human incarnational level, instead of just talking in tweets and bumper stickers and talking points, it's a totally different approach. But it's the approach that gets results. Yes. I said it's, it's another reason why designing this course for groups was better than designing it for individual consumption. It can be taken individually, but it's far better when you have a group of 14, 15 people taking it together because there has to be some discussion time. Yes. You have to slow down. Yeah, you got to slow down. So um, I think we could go on for a long time discussing these things, and I'm kind of sorry that I have to stop, but I do. How do people get the Worldview course? How, how do they find you? And how do they find the books you've written? And how do they find your latest projects? And Well, you can go to worldviewcourse.com and uh, you can pick up a copy of the Worldview course. Um, my other books uh, that I've written uh, and, and the books that Jim has written, they're all available on Amazon. And uh, we're, we're working on... Uh, updating uh, one of our other websites to kind of combine all of these properties into one thing, but worldviewcourse.com, that'll get you started. And do people, I, I think one of the bio points on, I can't remember where, cause I went all over the place, Mark, I don't think this was true for you, James, but Mark, you're not averse to dialoguing with people. You're interested if people want to talk to you to talk back with them. Absolutely. And I think James is too. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, your our, thing said it. <laughs> our contact information, um, is, is there on worldview, uh, worldviewcourse.com. That's actually how you got in touch with us, Andrea. That's true. And we hear from people constantly, uh, just asking questions about something we said in the course about a particular belief we hold, or they just want to talk. We've, we've had people share whole lists of ways they're planning on flipping the commandments and doing all sorts of things. We really try to have uh, a relationship with everyone who who takes the worldview course. That's getting harder and harder the more popular it's become. But um, but yeah, send us a line. We'd love to talk to you. Info at worldviewcourse.com. Okay. And then lastly, for those who don't have DVDs or don't even know what they are, um, are they just out of luck, or is there another way oh. they can access this? No, they, um, one of the things you get when you sign up for the course is you, um, for both uh, you as the group leader and any of your participants, uh, they do have streaming access to all of those things, uh, all 13 video sessions on, on worldviewcourse.com. Um, so don't be too afraid of those, those three letters DVD. Yes, yeah. I still have, I, hey, I still have VHS cap capabilities. Oh my so. goodness. But it's amazing. I can't tell you how many churches have gotten in touch with us and said, thank you for still offering DVDs. We were planning on not, uh, we were planning on sunsetting them about a year ago, but so many churches just, they don't have the best internet and they want to watch it together. And DVD is just the best way for them to do that. So. All right, James, any parting words from the senior member of this uh, duo? Well, uh, I, I'd encourage you to, I'd love to put you in contact with Mark as well. Um, it's not because I don't like to talk, but it's because he handles the, the operations uh, far more than I do. Um, so I, I, I'd love to, to chat with people and answer questions, but at the same time, 
um, uh, when it comes to how do, how do I do such and such? How do I get to such and such? Mark's the one who sets it all up. And sometimes I have to ask him as well. Um, how do I do such and such? And, and I, I'm, I'm pretty computer literate, but, but, uh, he's the guy to go to. Nonetheless, though, you know, I, I love chatting with people about, about orthopraxy. I mean, how do I put my faith into practice on a daily basis? Um, and, and what we're for rather than what we're against. How to, how to quit sounding, you know, quit calling for the lifeboats and grab an oar. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, I think that I'll, I'll just leave you with this. It, it hit me hard a few years ago. And this is really what woke me up spiritually in this regard with regard to worldview is Jesus had said, you're inheriting the earth. And then we talk about going to heaven forever. And I thought, why did he, why do we say we're going to heaven forever? If Jesus said you're inheriting the earth, there had to be something different about this that, that if I'm inheriting the earth, that is a far more victorious eschatology than anything I had ever been raised with. So that piqued my interest. And that led me into studies to see what, how is it that we win, not just at the end of the book, but all the way through, including the maps. I don't understand. How is it that, that we win? That was a whole radical concept for me. And I would encourage folks um, as they watch the course, I would encourage folks to just realize that we are heirs. We're not renters. We are, we're future landlords and we have responsibility. When we see something wrong in society, rather than saying somebody ought to do something about that, or I voted for the wrong guy, we need to realize, no, I've got something to do with that. This is my responsibility. Where's my responsibility first? Very good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been really fun. Like I said, I already felt like I knew you because, you know, you kept showing up on my television. So <laughs> that's good. Listeners, I encourage you to check out their website to purchase the course and then to start thinking of what night of the week you might invite some friends over or, as they said, encourage maybe Bible study groups at the church or whatever to do it or even young people. Um, I've got a session going with some young people and their parents are eager so that they have practice in expressing their views. You know, instead of being afraid that your view might be wrong, which it might be, right? But if you don't express it, you can't even hear, no, that actually is a biblical worldview. So listeners, you can contact me if you choose at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.